Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we are playing a show from our archives. This is a Boomer Boulevard show that was first presented on the 28th of March back in 2016. I hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Chester has his Bermuda shorts on and sandals, and he looks like he is ready to go to the pool. The pools haven't opened yet around here, but another month or so, and they'll start doing it. It is definitely springtime here in Missouri, and I welcome you. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. So glad to have you along. We have a great show lined up this week. We have... um, an episode of Escape. It's a little creepy, but I think you're going to like it. And we have uh, an episode of um, Fibber McGee and Molly that is really wonderful. We have a little salute to Bob and Ray, and we're going to finish things up on the streets of Dodge City, Kansas with a great episode of Gunsmoke. So it's time for you to put down whatever you're doing Grab yourself something cold to drink or warm to drink and uh, head over to that easy chair because we're going to get started in just a minute.
going to get started tonight with an episode of Escape. This one uh, was originally from 1949, and it's it has an unusual subject matter. Uh, well, here, let me let me give you a hint with this uh, with this song. Boys and girls, take warning if you go near the lake. Keep your eyes wide open and look for Sneaky Snake. Now maybe you won't see him, maybe you won't hear, but he'll sneak up behind you and drink all of your root beer. And then Sneaky Snake goes dancing, wiggling and a-hissing. Sneaky Snake goes dancing, Giggling and a kissing. I don't like old Sneaky Snake. He laughs too much, you see. When he goes wiggling through the grass, it tickles his underneath. Well, Sneaky Snake drinks root beer, and he just makes me sick. When he is not dancing, he looks just like a stick. Now he doesn't have any arms or legs You cannot see his ears And while we are not looking He's stealing all of our beer And then Sneaky Snake goes dancing Wiggling and a-hissing Sneaky Snake goes dancing A-giggling and a-kissing I don't like old Sneaky Snake he laughs too much, you see. When he goes wiggling through the grass, it tickles his underneath. Ah, that's right. We're going to do a story about everybody's favorite subject, snakes. Oh. Are you afraid of snakes, Chester? Yeah, nobody really likes snakes. Anyway, the name of this episode is Snake Doctor. Snake Doctor was uh, based on a short story by American author Irwin S. Cobb. And it's a story about jealousy, superstition, and water moccasins. The uh, story was first published in 1923 in a volume entitled uh, Snake Doctor and Other Stories. The show was done twice on Escape, once in February 1948, and that one was produced and directed by William N. Robeson, but the episode we're going to hear tonight was originally broadcast on 8-18-49, and it was produced and directed by Norm MacDonald. <laughs> standing at the doorway of a cabin on Cashier Creek. Upon the ridge, the bloodhounds have caught your scent, and between you and a fortune, between you and escape, yawn the white jaws of a deadly cottonmouth. We offer you Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure.
Tonight, we escape to the worn-out acres of a poor farm somewhere in the southern mountains with Irvin S. Cobb's great tale of vengeance, Snake Doctor. Far back in the southern mountains, it's quiet and hot and lonely. One pine-scarred hill is very much like the next, and one winding creek differs little from another. The area through which Cashier Creek twisted was the same as all the rest, except for the snakes. Deadly, venomous snakes. There were probably more snakes along Cashier Creek than anywhere else. Most people lived in constant fear of these snakes, but there was one man who even seemed to like them. A man they called Snake Doctor. His cabin was near the creek bottom where the cottonmouths were the commonest. And he earned his meagre living by rendering down their soft fats, bottling their oil, and selling it. Snake Doctor seemed harmless enough, but there was one man who believed he was a colleague of the devil, who hated him, because he wasn't afraid of the snakes. This man was Jafe Mourner, the Snake Doctor's nearest neighbor. Jafe was that dangerous kind of man who suspected, feared, and hated anything he didn't understand. And he understood neither Cottonmouths nor the snake doctor. Jafe was ornery, ignorant, and shiftless. He'd rather shoot squirrels and chop cotton. He'd rather fish than hoe corn. And that's what he's doing now. Fishing down at the big hole with his son and heir, Finney, who's old enough but not quite bright enough to handle a gun. Missed him, doggy. Finney, you blame fool. I told you not to touch my gun. Trump on him, Pa, before he gets in the creek. What? The cotton mouth. Trump on him in front of you. The cotton mouth. The vomit. The unearthly vomit. You got it, Pa. Keep your foot on him. We'll stop fetch a stick. You don't need to, son. He's dead. Now, come here. Pa, how'd he hit anything with that rifle? I had a beat draw right on him. Heck, he was sunning himself not more than two feet from you. He was just two feet from you. Never mind that kind of talk. Won't be no fish around here till Thunderation after all that racket. Well, come on, let's go home and get us some vittles. Jafe Mourner tossed his bait can into the creek and threw a stick after it. He stood there watching the stick drift slowly toward the big hole where the creek widened behind a jam of driftwood. Jafe watched as the eddy caught the stick and sucked it beneath the dam. Jafe was curious. He moved downstream a rod or two and waited, watching the water boil up from under the driftwood. But the stick didn't come up. That was strange. It must have caught under there in a tangle of water-soaked and sunken logs. Probably it had stayed there for months. Perhaps stay there always. Let's get some bills, Paul. Jafe thought about this, and an idea began to form in his slow mind as he and Finney started for home. How much oil you reckon's in this, and Paul? Daddy? What you jawing about? This old cotton man. How much oil you reckon? Throw it in? down. Throw it down? Why for? I'm gonna Throw land. it down like I say. Oh? I was aiming on rendering the old cotton mouth's fat like the snake doctor does. I was in the cellar and make myself some money. I don't like the squirming things around me. But it's dead. Leave it where it dropped. You scared on cottonmouths, Pa? I know better than to get myself bit by them. Tip Daly knowed a fella got hisself bit once. We're in a draft for miles. 
So he goes to work and he cut open a live chicken. And he put it on his leg where the butt was. Fella lived, too. Mm. Reckon Mr. Rives ever gets himself fit? I mean, handling cotton out like he does? Who? Mr. Rives. Who? Mr. Rives. That's old Snake Doctor's real name. Moss says I oughtn't call him Snake Doctor. Never mind what your Moss says. Nobody in my family's calling no snake-loving scum Mr. Rives. Heck, that's what I say. All right. Well, I made myself some money renting that cottonmouth fat down in the oil. I could... How much you reckon old Snake Doctor makes out in the oil he sells? I don't know. Pip Bailey says old Snake Doctor's got more than a thousand dollars hid away somewhere in his cabin. More than that, most likely. Cussed old miser don't spend nothing. Ain't got nothing save that rack of bones mare his. Pip Bailey says whenever old Snake Doctor sets foot out in his place, he's got the granddaddy of all cottonmouths that he leaves out in the cabin to stand guard over his money. Yeah. Pip Bailey says he'd see old Snake Doctor put him in his pocket. Live ones, too. Snake Doctor ain't fitting to be alive himself. Ma says he ain't so bad. Says he don't mean nobody harm. Your ma better be careful who she's associating with. She says he just don't have good sense. Had the fever too much. Daddy, you ever been in Snake Doctor's place? I don't have nothing more than I have to to do with that snake-loving hoodoo. Dip Bailey says he'd better wouldn't be no task at all for some no good to poke around the Snake Doctor's shack and maybe find all the money and make off with it. Hmm. Blame the son's dirty rendering me down. Look at my head, full of sweat. Look, Daddy. Huh? See? Full of sweat. Dirty near guard full of sweat come off. Why turn it down that way, Pa? Coming on noon, dinner be most ready. I'm gonna tell the snake loving hoodoo that there's some of them cottonmouths on the creek side of our dead and Heck, he knows that. I'm gonna tell him he's got my leave to catch him. You don't need to come along. Well, if you're going over to his place, I'd kinda like to see it for my own sake. Go on in, Pa. Huh? He ain't at home. Elsewise, he showed himself by now. I reckon. Can you see any snakes? I told you to keep an eye out for it. I bet it's in one of them chinks, Pa. I bet the money's in I one of them... I ain't looking for no money. <laughs> Must be a dang snake himself, living in a place like this. I know you ain't looking for any money, Pa, but if you was, wouldn't you look at that the chink right up there? Where? Right there, second log by the fireplace on the right. You see that there hole? Yeah. I reckon I would look up there. Since we're here... I might as well see for myself. Paul, I wouldn't be a mite surprised if old snake doctor had him. Paul? 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 Was you looking for something, Jake Marner? Snake doctor? Yeah. I, I was looking for you. I want here. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Look here, you old hoodoo. What's the idea of sneaking up on folks who's took a trouble to come all the way down here to do you a favor, huh? Uh, come on, Fanny. We can out of here. Yes, sir. Like as not, they had a dang old moccasin squirching around in his pocket whilst he was talking to you. Daddy, do you mind how his eyes was when he come in? 
Uh. Do you mind how I kept looking up at the wall where I said I bet he had the money between the chink? Benny. What? Don't you say nothing to your ma about us being at the snake doctor's place, you understand? Why should well, I? Well, just don't. And don't you go nigh it again. <laughs> Cuss old vomit. You'd have thought we was prowlers way acting. Yeah, prowlers. Ma! Then about ready! You pull with you, son? Yeah. I got time enough for dinner to go down the spring and get me some cold water. If you stir your thumbs, you can. Catch anything, Jeep? Uh, you think I can catch fish with Fetty fine off my gun at cotton mouths all the time? Uh, ain't this heat more than a body can bear? Uh, ain't it colder but the creek? Uh, that poor old Miss Rives come by here a spell ago. Mightn't I shook to pieces with a chill? Oh, he come by, did he? Well, did he come in? Just for a minute. Just for a minute, huh? What'd he want? The one that could have given some for his ailment. Just about could drag one soft foot before the other. Barely could make it up here from his place. I give him a dose out in our butler's acre drops. Would have given him a little smidgen of liquor, only oh, I could... Oh, you would, huh? Please don't, Jeff. Don't whop me. <laughs> don't, Jeff, don't whop me. Just poor old Mr. 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 How many times I gotta tell you that old hoodoo's name is Snake Doctor? You don't mean nobody no huh? Him at his skin of lost with its hiding tallow and you calling him Mr. Rives. Huh. You be calling him honey and sugar next. Without I learn you. Please, Jeff, please. Pet names, huh? Well, I aim to learn <laughs> What's his name now? Well, what's your poor Mr. Rives' name now? Snake Doctor. Kizzy Mourner gave the frying pan full of sizzling side meat a hopeless nudge. She prayed that time and food might take the edge off Jafe's temper. Finney slouched in from the spring, saw the mark on her arm. Paul been whomping you again, Ma? What'd you do this time? She silently dished up the hogback and cornbread for her two men. While they sat at table, she ate on her feet, serving them between bites, as was the custom in the Mourner household. After dinner, Finney stretched out under the chinaberry tree and... Kizzy sat on the porch, fanning herself and dipping snuff with a peach twig, scouring it back and forth on her gums. Jafe took his ease on the floor of the back room, but he didn't sleep. The meanness was stirring in him, and his hatred of the man he couldn't understand, the man who'd got rich off a cotton mouse. His mind was working on something he'd seen that day and another thing he'd heard. He was adding them together. That stick that had disappeared under the log jam... And the snake doctor's money. It was four o'clock before any of them moved, and then Jafe spoke to his wife for the first time since noon. Busy, where's that there vibe of drinking liquor? By the window. You took it out in your pocket before you laid it down. I ought to carry a vial of liquor with me. I might get bit by a moccasin as soon as Paul would. You better not let me catch you. You find it, Jafe? Yeah, I just remembered. I won't be needing to tote no spits along with me while I'm going. 
I wouldn't take no chance, Dave. Just one cottonmouth bite. Cottonmouth stalled down the slashes, else along a creek. Well, I'll be all this evening's up along Bailey's Ridge in the high ground. You fixing to go shooting? Yeah. Aim to gun me a chance of young squirrels twixt now and dust time. Heard them barking all around me this morning. Reckon I'll come along, Paul. You stay in here, son. Oh, dang it. You'll be steaming in the place when the rain comes down. Paul, you might be needing me just... You stay here. Oh, dang it. Kizzy. Kizzy. You set me up a snack of cold supper on the chef. Rockley, Rockley, won't get back till it's plumb dark. Jafe Morn had turned north through his struggling corn rolls, and in a minute he was lost from sight. He kept on for nearly a mile till he came to a wild red mulberry tree. Where there are mulberries, there are bound to be squirrels. Very neatly. He shot two young greys. Right through the head. But Jafe was a master marksman. And unsuspected by any who knew him, Jafe had another quality. One that made him more dangerous than the rest of his kind. Jafe had an imagination. Today it was an excellent working order. He tied the brain squirrels together and swung them over his shoulder. If needed, they'd be his alibi. And then he sat down under a tree for a while. Got plenty of time. Don't need to get on the snake doctor's place till about dusk. When he comes out to feed that swayback mare, his and... <laughs> Mr. Ryan. He sat out two brisk thunder showers in the intervals between them. And then he set off in a wide arc down Bailey's branch along the skirts of Little Cypress Slash down to the sunken flats edge in Cashier Creek. It took more than an hour of careful traveling before he came to his destination. A screen of haw bushes, less than 50 yards behind the snake doctor's cabin. No matter how ailing he is, you'll get up and come out to feed that rack of bones mare. <laughs> Mr. Ives, well, I'll learn him to go colleaguing around another man's woman. Jafe Mourner let his jealousy heat him to white hatred. At this moment, he was avenging his honor. Didn't admit even to himself that the real reason he was here was a snake doctor's money hidden behind the log by the fireplace. Home-wrecking, snake-loving varmint. Well, ten minutes from now, I'll chunk him down a big hole in the creek like I did that stick this morning. And he'll go down and never come up. And nobody will miss him. Nobody will know he's gone for leastwise a week, maybe a month. And maybe if I get around to it, I might come back this way someday. Poke around that cabin of his and just to see if it's true. His having all that money hid away. Jake Morner's speculations were cut short. The cabin door opened and a figure stepped out into the growing dusk and walked toward the stable. He saw the snake doctor's loppy old straw hat and his dog coat. At this distance, he couldn't miss. And he didn't. The figure jerked backward and then went face forward. Jake started for him, then he stopped. His eyes bugged. His mouth formed a scream that he couldn't utter. His rifle dropped to the ground. He had just killed a snake doctor, killed him dead with a 32 caliber slug through the head. And there on his door still stood snake doctor, whole and sound, staring at him. Jave Mona, <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> the scream came at last, for Jafe Mona had seen the devil. The snake doctor who arose alive from his bullet-riddled body. <laughs> 
Jay whirled and ran into the deep darkening woods, whimpering like a whipped puppy as he tore through the brush. Escape. He must escape this, this thing. He must get under the shelter of a sound roof. He must have the protection of four walls around him. He ran and ran for hours. It was close to midnight when he came out on a dirt road a short distance southeast of his own land. Beyond the next bend, he'd be in sight of home. And then he stopped. Around the bend, coming toward him was a joggling light, a lantern hanging on a buggy. Jake flattened himself in a clump of brush to hide until the traveler passed. And then, just as the rig was opposite him, he heard a call coming from the other direction. Hey, over there! Who's jogging? Oh, there. Oh, skinny boy. Me, Davis Ware. That you, Tip Bailey? Yeah. Folks near that from the junction. Tolerable tide. What brings you out this time of night, Davis? Somebody sick? Sick nothing. There's been a parcel of trouble popping in these bottoms tonight. Steady, boy. Steady. Uh, uh, what do you mean? A killing. That's what I mean. You don't say. Who got killed? I'm fixing to tell you. It happened uh, just around dusk time at down at old snake doctor's place. Yeah? Was it him was killed? Oh, give me time, Tip. It seems like snake doctor's been a chillin' lately. Mm-hmm. It was pretty bad off today, so Miss Kizzy Morner, she footed it down from her place to his and fetching some physic with her and a plate of hot vittles. Hey, mighty thought Miss Morner, mighty thought You want to hear this? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Go on. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Well, uh, pretty soon after she got there, it seemed like he was tired. And uh, he tried to get up out of his bed to go and feed that old crowbait nag of his. Uh-huh. It uh, started in again by then, pouring down hard. So she made him stay where he was, and she put on his old hat and throwed his old coat around her. And he wanted to keep out of the wet. And no more, and she got outside, and a shot came from the edge of the woods, uh-huh. and down she went with a bullet through her brains. Killed her? Kissy. It was a dog. It was well, but, Kissy. But who done it? It was that low-flung husband of hers done it, that's who. They shot him for him. Oh, sure thing. Oh, boy. Sure thing, they're certain. Snake doctor jumped up when he heard the shot, and he catched a quick look at Jay for the fence. Uh-huh. There wasn't a long streak in Kiss's arm where he must have whooped her during the day. Why, hanging's a sight too good. Did they catch him? No, but they gonna. Sheriff get there yet? Oh, but he's due any minute with his pack of hound dogs. Oh, Trail ought to lay good, ground being damped the way it is. Oh, sure. Old snake doctor, he's a-saying the Lord's going to strike the murder down in his track. Amen. But me, uh, I'm a-putting my main dependence on them bloodhounds. Oh, poor Miss Marner. She always was a good-hearted, hard-working woman. Kizzy. And mightily put She's upon dead. by that skunk. A shot Kizzy. I say, did you hear something just there? Can't say I did. Yeah. Oh, probably a rabbit breaking through the brush, hmm? Listen. Yeah. The sheriffs are coming. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can hear them hounds are hissing. Oh, just for sure. I gotta hurry. Get out, Bessie. Come on. I'll see you back at the morning. You sure will. Jafe didn't waste no time mourning his dead wife. He had a chance against a pack of bloodhounds if he started right away. But Jafe's imagination went to work again as he backtracked along the creek bottom in the spotty moonlight. Gotta throw those dogs off the trail. He gotta wade the creek. Even if it is full of cotton mounds. Must be all around me now. Folks say don't strike in the water. Hope him folks is right. I gotta get back to the snake doctor. Get his money while he's still up at my place with Kiz's remains. 
Get his money and the rest will be easy. I'll make for the deep timber, cross country to the river, make it for tomorrow sundown. Hire me a shanty boater to ferry me to the Arkansas side. He'll get me a haircut and catch me a train for somewhere else. And I gotta get Snake Doctor's money first. Snake Doctor's cabin was dark and empty when Jafe reached it. Only a few dull embers in the fireplace. But he knew where the chink was. He'd find it in the dark. He scrabbled at the logs, felt some bark give, felt the clay mortar crumble under his fingernails. There it was, a hole big enough for a man's arm. He plunged his hand into it, touched something slick and smooth, and then something sharp plunged into his thumb. At that moment, the fire flickered to life. Jafe yanked his hand out of the hole, saw two tiny bleeding punctures in his thumb. At the mouth of the hole stretched the wide-open jaws of a cottonmouth. It worked fast. He felt the pain leaping from his thumb to his hand, seeping up his arm. If only he had some liquor. If he had a fresh-killed chicken to slap on the wound, but he had nothing. Then a sharp, horrible pain wrenched his heart, and then a second. And there in the firelight, the huge cottonmouth poised in its crevice. Jafe leaped out of the shack, started blinding for the timber. He staggered, stumbled, then he pitched forward on his face, his open mouth full of weeds and muddy grass stems. The cramping fingers of his outstretched right hand almost touched a reddish-black smear on the wet, trampled grass. Good riddance by gravy. I'd call it that, wouldn't you, Doc? I reckon there's a sort of rough justice in the way he died. Look, his hand reaching out, just about touching the blood where his woman fell. But in all my life, I've never known but two or three people actually was bitten by water moccasins. And until tonight, I've never had personal knowledge of anybody dying from the bite of any kind of snake. It's a fact. You mm-hmm. know that, that crazy. I'm going to take that rifle off of you, Finny Mourner. I'm going to kill the dang reptile and kill my paw. That Mourner's boy kicking up the fuss? Yep, but no good like his paw. Let go of me. I'm the home boss, man. What's the trouble, Tip? Oh, Finny here's went out in his hay. I'm going to kill the snake that bit in my paw. Then I'm going to give that snake doctor a whomping for keeping a reptile in his place. Your pa got what was his due, Finny. Snake doctor ain't to blame. He's a hoodoo devil. Look here, boy. Mr. Rives give me all his savings, nearly $100, to pay for bearing your mother decent. That's how much he thought of her. Now go on home. Behave yourself. I'm going to get Go that. on, Finny. There ain't no reason for you hanging around here. Somebody ought to kill a reptile a bit in my paw. Doc, just a minute ago you started to say something about... Snake bite not killing, but how about them two marks on his thumb? Them snakes gashes like some I've seen. No, that don't explain how it... It's Finny Mona. He's in the cabin. The fool kid. Come on, Doc. He's probably shot. Yeah, we're too far off. I shot it! I shot it! But I didn't hear it! It's gonna get me like he got my paw! He said he shot at something in the cabin. Come on, Doc. Let's go see. All right. (laughs) I don't see anything. Finney's had enough happen to him yesterday and today to upset even a bright boy. So we can't... Oh, oh. There it is. What? That cotton mouth up there in that hole in the log. Oh, there. Snake doctor told me about that vomit. Look at him closer, Davis. Mm, no, sir. Not me. Go ahead. It's just a stuffed snake. Stuffed? Mm-hmm. Snake doctor believes in precautions because that hole's where he hides his money. That snake would scare away anybody who didn't know it was stuffed. But just to be sure... Old Snake Doctor lined the hole with coils of barbed wire. Oh, I see. You mean them marks on Jafe's thumb was got off the barbed wire? That's right, sir. 
Lots stronger hearts than chief mourners would stop beating at a scare like that. Well, I'll be switched. Old snake doctor's a cute one, ain't he? Escape. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, tonight brought you Snake Doctor by Irvin S. Cobb, adapted for radio by Fred Howard, starring Bill Conrad as Jape with Paul Freeze as Finney. Featured in the cast were Ira Grossell as a narrator, Bill Lally, Ruth Parrott, Wilms Herbert, and Edgar Barrier. Music is conducted by Wilbur Hatch. This is John Jacobs speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. So there you have a rather creepy story about snakes. I remember my mother used to uh, talk about sometimes she would wake up at night uh, in a nightmare. I mean, it wasn't frequent. But she, she would dream that she was back in Texas. She originally came from, uh, from uh, Texas, not far from, from Dallas. She was from Weatherford. And they lived on a farm there. And they would go out in this swimming hole, wherever it was. And there would be snakes, water snakes. And she said some of the snakes were kind of aggressive. And she remembers uh, these snakes chasing her sometimes. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. We didn't have that. We had sharks in the ocean where I grew, but we didn't didn't have water moccasins. Now, I know here in Missouri, it's very uh, popular in summertime to go rafting, whitewater rafting, and there's several rivers around and most of them have snakes in them but i don't think i've ever heard of anybody being injured by uh, a snake bite Mm, i don't know there's something about snakes in the water though it's it's just creepy
was holding sweet green thing in his big human hand. A long jet of water shot out of her nose. Oh, King Snake had fallen in love with a hose. He said, That was Billy Gilman singing about a snake, a king snake, that fell in love with a green garden hose. I don't make this stuff up, folks. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> This week on the Comedy Corner, we're going to visit Fibber McGee and Molly. And for this episode, we're going back to October the 7th, 1947. The name of the story is The Football Game Anniversary, and here it comes. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. <laughs> Johnson's Wax Products for Home and Industry present Fibber McGee and Molly with Bill Thompson, Gail Gordon, Arthur Q. Bryan, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The script is by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie. Music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. I think you'll agree that few things do more for a home than richly wax-polished floors. And yet, can you think of any beauty treatment that costs less? Why, a gleaming carpet of genuine Johnson's wax costs only a few pennies. Look on the bright side, shine up the right side, bring out the beauty of the home. When you've been married as long as Mrs. McGee has to Mr. McGee... And he goes around with an expression on his face like butter wouldn't melt in his hot little head. You don't have to shake his coat to know he has something up his sleeve. Well, let's see what it is as we join Fibber McGee and Molly. All right, sweetheart, I give up. What is it? What's what? Now, don't be coy, dearie. Tell Muddy your little secret. Well, I've arranged a little surprise for you, Tootsie. You know what day this is? Yes, but I don't know that it has any special significance. <laughs> unless uh, Mr. Vyshinsky has sent an orchid to Mr. Winchell. Oh, 
Ah. So you don't know, eh? No. Gee whiz, Molly, have you forgot October 7th, 1917? The day I took you to your first big football game? The one I played in? Oh, for goodness sakes, was that the... Is this the anniversary... Well, heavenly days. You know, I've still got the chrysanthemum you gave me that day. Yeah. And it's as fresh today as it was then. <laughs> well, you hang on to it, kiddo. You can't buy them good paper ones anymore. Boy, what a football game that was. Well, it was very sweet of you to remember the anniversary. But my goodness, you shouldn't have gone and bought me a present. What is it? What'd you buy? Can I see it? Oh, well, it isn't so much exactly a present so much exactly as it is, a, well, a kind of a something for both of us, you might say. Something we need for the home. Well, that takes in plenty of territory. Now, you just relax, Snooky. They're going to deliver it this afternoon. And... Oh, maybe that's the delivery man now. Oh. Come in. Nope, that's just the old-timer. Hi, old-timer. Glad to see you. Hello there, kids. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Old-timer. We haven't seen you for quite a while. Well, I had to skip town for a while, daughter. The heat was on. The heat was on? You in a jam with the law or something? <laughs> no, it was just the heat this summer, Johnny. Oh. 99 in the shade, the only place I could get cool was at the movies. Seen so many Donald Ducks, I started to walk with a waddle. <laughs> so I beat it out of town. Went out west, up in the mountains. Rocky Mountains? You said it, daughter. Ain't seen so many hairpin turns since my bald-headed sister got dressed for the opera. <laughs> Mighty pretty scenery up in them mountains. Mighty sightly country. <laughs> so they say, old-timer. Though I can't take it myself. The air is so much like wine, it gives me the hiccups. Well, <laughs> pretty wonderful, <laughs> You ever see the sun come up over Lake Louise, creeping across the horizon like a Florida orange sneaking over the California line? <laughs> Painting the lake all pink and gold like a Spanish omelet with cranberry sauce? <laughs> no, we never have. Me neither. I'm a late sleeper myself. <laughs> Had a job on a ranch out there for a while up near that state park, uh, Yosemite. <laughs> no, not Yosemite, old-timer. That's pronounced Yosemite. What kind of work were you doing? Removing stumps. With a bulldozer? Nope, with dynamity. <laughs> <laughs> well, that must have been a nice job for the summer. Oh, I didn't stay with it long, Johnny. Went to San Francisco and got a job writing radio commercials for rhythm chewing tobacco. Rhythm chewing tobacco? Wow, that was something you could really get your teeth into, wasn't it? <laughs> yep, wrote one dandy commercial for the rhythm company. Went like this. If you're chewing in tune, you never miss the spittoon. <laughs> yes, if you're chewing in tune, you never miss the spittoon. Uh, look. <laughs> Old timer. <laughs> if you expect to write as a copywriter, you can't expect to write copy like that. <laughs> That's pretty good, Johnny. But that ain't the way I heard it. <laughs> the way I heard it, one feller says to tell the feller, say, he says, I see where Congress may stay in session all winter this year. Is that so, says the other feller. Lots of work to do? No, says the first feller. Scared to go home. <laughs> well, see you the orchestra and the lady from 29 Palms.
McGee, it's almost 2 o'clock. Are you sure they're going to deliver that this afternoon? Deliver what? Oh, the surprise sure. for the home. Yeah, sure, sure. They'll deliver today. Now, you just relax, Phil. Relax, the man says. Yes, sir. Heavenly days, how can I relax when I'm so excited? Huh? If I could turn my emotions off and on like that, I'd be doing soap operas. <laughs> what are we doing? Well, I always was one for the unexpected, you know. You know, I'm always a... Now, that was unexpected. Come in, come in. Well, my goodness, Dr. Gamble. Oh, it's so nice to see you, Doctor. Thank you, my dear. It's nice to see you. And good day to you, too, my boy. Hi, body patcher. <laughs> Throw that bag of suet you walked upstairs and saved $10 on into a chair and bring us up to date. On what, Droopy? On yourself, Doctor. What's new in the world of medicine these days? Yeah, you up on the latest scientific developments, Doc, or don't you take the Reader's Digest? <laughs> I never read any of the pocket magazines, Sonny. My pockets are so dark, it strains my eyes. <laughs> By the way, Molly, you look very happy today. Oh, I am happy, Doctor. <laughs> Why shouldn't she be happy? She's got a husband who treats her like a queen, full of thoughtful little gestures, remembers anniversaries and things like that there. This, for instance, doctor, is the anniversary of the first time he ever took me to a football game. And he remembered it. That's me, just a sentimental fool. Well, I'm glad you told me. I'll change your record when I get back to the office. I'll erase the darn and put in sentimental. <laughs> I tell you, it was a great football game he took me to, Doctor. He played in it. He was the uh, drawback or uh, setback. Uh... Halfback. 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 Third string. Substitute. <laughs> the coach saved me for the big Thanksgiving game that year. Well, sir, it was the final quarter. Peoria versus Joliet with the score tied. The fans were going wild, yelling for a touchdown. I leaped off uh, the bench. Tell me some other time, shortening bread. I have some very Oh, now important... you ought to hear this, Doctor. Tell him, dearie. I will. <laughs> well, sir, I leaps off the bench and runs up to the coach. Put me in, coach, I says. He slaps me on the shoulder and says, kind of quiet like, he says, go back and sit down, fathead. <laughs> and just then, Joliet makes another touchdown with a double wingback formation and a Statue of Liberty play with the left tackle playing defensive on a concealed pass to the right forward. It was crucial. <laughs> I tell you, I was so excited, I started to eat my penitent and, and uh, wave my hot dog. Uh-huh. Then the coach calls me over. All right, McGee, he says. Get in there and win this football game. I throws off my raccoon coat, runs over to the cameraman, poses for a few pictures, and trots out onto the field. The crowd screams. But he went out anyway. <laughs> Okay, men, I says. We'll give them the old shoestring play. That's very logical. I don't know anyone with older shoestrings than yours. <laughs> well, sir, after the next play, I drifted over to the sidelines and made like I was tying my shoestrings. The opposition team never noticed me. The ball went into play. The captain snaps me a long pass. I leaps into the air, grabs the ball, and takes off for the goal line. Like a bullet. So, what happened, if anything? I got a bad break, Doc. I was so excited, I'd accidentally tied my shoestrings together. <laughs> the first step I took, I went neck over elbow, and by the time I stopped bouncing, I was clear out in the parking lot. <laughs> they wouldn't let me back in without a ticket, so I grabbed a taxi and went home. He was the dog of the town for three weeks after that, Doctor, and I must say you never heard such language. Yes, it's always the little cusses that inspire the big cusses. 
I remember one time when... That's probably for you, Doctor. Probably. I have my office nurse phone me every hour wherever I am. Gets me out of some very dull parties. Excuse me. Hello, Dr. Gamble speaking. Who? The hospital? Oh, I'm sorry to hear it. I didn't foresee anything like that. I, uh... I'll be right over. Yes, goodbye. Bad news, Doctor? I'm afraid so. We just lost a patient. Oh. Oh, my gosh, Doc, that's too bad. What happened? He got well. What? <laughs> that's the breaks of the game, kids. See you later. <laughs> Isn't he a sweet old character? He's old and he's a character, but hey, what time is it? About half past. Why? Well, that delivery I was expecting. You, you, you're surprised, you know. I was just thinking that... Hello, the... Molly. Hiya, pal. Hello, Mr. Wilcox. Hi, Junior. Come on in and wish us a happy anniversary. Anniversary? Well, congratulations. How long have you been married? What that got to do with it? <laughs> I thought you said this was your anniversary. Well, it is. Himself here took me to my first football game, October 7th, 1917. Isn't he wonderful? I'll bet you don't remember the first big date you ever had, Mr. Wilcox. Oh, yes, I do. It was 1916 on Friday the 12th at 3.22 in the afternoon in Omaha. Wow. I remember the exact time because I had just put my wristwatch back in my pocket. Strap busted? No, but wristwatches were new then for men, and I didn't want Frida to think I was a sissy, even though I was the best wrestler in Benson High School. Who said so? Frida and the other girls. <laughs> anyway... Anyway, there we were in the parlor, dancing to the radio. Hey, now, uh, well, well, wait a minute. They didn't have radios in 1916. No, Frida did. Her father was rich. Oh. <laughs> well, anyway, it was awfully quiet in the house, and I was afraid Frida would try to kiss me. You see, she was a vamp. A what, Junior? A vamp. We called them vamps then. Oh. I was a sheep. Oh. Anyway, I said, where's your mother today, Frida? And she said, Mama's out scrubbing the kitchen floor. Scrubbing, I said. You mean she doesn't know about Johnson's glow coat? Did they have glow coat in 1916? Don't change the subject, Molly. Well, I dropped Frida like a hot potato. And don't think she was. <laughs> and, I... and I dashed out into the kitchen, and there was Frida's mother on her knees scrubbing the linoleum. How horrible. It's the last, last half of the ninth, folks. No scores yet, and the base is loaded. Wilcox on the mound. He's winding up, and here comes the pitch. Well, for 15 minutes, I stood... <laughs> I stood there telling Frida's mother about Johnson's self-polishing glow coat, how it's so easy to use, how you just pour a little out and spread it around, let it dry in 20 minutes or less to a brilliant protective gloss, how it shines as it dries with no rubbing or buffing, how it brings out the beauty and color of the linoleum, makes filled things so easy to wipe up. I bet she was really grateful, Mr. Wilcox. Nope. She told me to mind my own business and chased me out of the house. But Frida told me later that she always used glow coat after that. Oh, then you did see Frida again. Yes, yes. When I was in uniform, she came to the station to see me off. In uniform? I were your Navy, Mr. Wilcox. Scoutmaster. I was taking a bunch of kids to camp. <laughs> well, happy anniversary, folks. Hey, I got an idea, Molly. While we're waiting for him to deliver that little surprise, why don't we duck downtown to a movie? Well, it seems a little extravagant, but we might as well spend our money while a dollar is still worth 15 cents. Uh, what's showing at the Bijou? That's what I want to find out. Mother Wore Tights is playing there. Oh, all right. <laughs> 
Okay, Tootsie. Ah, there goes a good kid. And does she ever love surprises? And am I ever full of them? <laughs> you think she'd learn after a while that none of them ever amount to much, but no, she's always Jerry. Come in, come in, come in. Hi, mister. Oh, hi, Teeny. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to see you, but we were just going out. Mrs. McGee and I are going to a movie. Oh? Well, there's a dandy one at the Princess, mister. It's sail bad the center, and it's all in ticklish color, and they hey, say it's... Hey, hey, <laughs> Wait a minute. Hmm? It's not sail bad the center. It's Sinbad the sailor. Okay. Anyway, it's a dandy picture, I bet you. I and Willie Toops went to it. No, no, no. Willie Toops and I went to it. When? Huh? When did you and Willie go to it? <laughs> seen it before. I when... didn't go with Willie Toops. I was merely correcting your grammar. You said I and Willie Toops, and that's incorrect. It's Willie Toops and I. <laughs> First person singular takes the object in the possessive tense if the participle is part of the predicate. <laughs> you understand? Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> but anyway, it was a peachy picture, I bet you. It was, eh? Yeah. Willie and I... Hmm? I said it was, eh? What's what? A good picture. Where? At the Princess, the one you and Willie went to. I know it. Well? That's the same one you and Willie went to. I didn't go to the picture with Willie. You did too, I bet you. No. You said you and Willie went to see Sail Bad the Sinner. I didn't say any such a thing. I never said, I never saw Sail Bad the Sinner. And if I had, I, if I had, I wouldn't have gone with Willie Toops. I think he's a dreadful little pest. Please, Mr. McGee. Well? You are speaking of the man I love. <laughs> I and Willie are engaged. There you go again, sis. You mean Willie and I are... In... No, 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 that would be... Sure. <laughs> he gave me an engagement ring, too, I betcha. Oh, See? Say, that's a beautiful ring, Deanie. Sure it is, I betcha. Hmm. It's pure silver. Really? Pure silver? Mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm. He got it in a box of Cracker Jacks. <laughs> He said if the prize was a whistle, we'd play cops and robbers. And if it was a ring, we'd get engaged. Uh, and it was a ring, and boy, was Willie ever burned up. Yeah. <laughs> sure, he wanted to play cops and robbers. <laughs> Goodbye now. Goodbye, Stephen. The Kingsmen and Freedom Train. This song is a train song, it's a song about a train. Not the Atchison, Topeka, not the Chattanooga choo-choo, not the train that leaves at midnight for the state of Alabama. This song is a train song where the engineer is Uncle Sam. Here comes that freedom train, you better hurry down. Just like a Paul Revere, it's coming into your hometown. Inside that freedom train, you'll find a precious freight. Those words of liberty, the documents that made us great. You can shout your anger from a steeple. You can shoot the system full of holes. You can always question we the people. You can get your answer at the polls. That's how it's always been And how it will remain As long as all of us keep riding on the freedom train Riding on the freedom train I hear that freedom train is coming to Wistful Vista, Molly. That's something I want to see. Oh, me too, McGee. 
Imagine seeing the original Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and everything. Yeah. It's kind of easy to forget the things that made this a great country and sort of take things for granted. Oh, isn't the Freedom Train a wonderful name for it? Yeah. I just hope they watch the danger signals and keep it on the right track. Well, the crew is made up of people like you and me, dearie, so it's up to us. That's how it's always been and how it will remain. As long as all of us keep riding on the freedom, riding on the freedom. Enjoyed that picture, McGee, that crossfire. Isn't that Bob Ryan wonderful? Oh, he's okay if you like that type. Tall, handsome, curly-haired, rugged, and built like an athlete. <laughs> oh, he's such a fine actor, too. He had me simply scared to death. Oh, uh, my gosh, I could have played that role just as well myself. If I had all his talent. <laughs> just because he... Oh, hey, look who's coming. It's that Williams guy. Williams? Yeah. Well, the man Dr. Gamble introduced us to in the bank. Yeah. I thought he was a very pleasant... Ah, good day, Mr. Williams. What? Oh. Oh, how do you do, Mrs. McCabe? McGee is the name, Williams. Remember? We met you in the bank with Doc Gamble the other day. Oh. Oh, yes, yes, McGee. <laughs> Lovely day, isn't it? Yeah. Except that it's a little cool. Although at this time of year, I suppose we must expect a little cool weather. Except that we sometimes get quite a hot spell during our Indian summer. Oh, pardon me for mentioning Indian summer. I didn't intend to inject a racial note into the discussion. Well, that's quite all right, Mr. Williams. We're not Indians. No. Not American Indians, anyway. I'm more of an East Indian. Spent several years in Indochina. Used to travel through the jungle barefooted, buying lumber. Bought a lot of teak wood from a Chinese fellow named Chan. The natives all called me the barefoot boy with teak of Chan. Get it, Williams? Cheek of Chan? Cheek of Chan? It's a play on words involving a pun on the word hey, cheeks. funny, McGee. Oh, hey. <laughs> My gosh, I lay awake for two hours last night working on that. <laughs> I rather enjoyed it myself. Well, thanks. I agree that a pun is sometimes the lowest form of humor, but on the other hand, a clever play on words I find rather amusing. Yeah? In other terms, while I detest puns, I sometimes like them very much. <laughs> Yes, I uh, see. You live in Wispel Vista, Mr. Williams? Yes, yes, I do, Mrs. McGee. That is, I say I do. Although, to be strictly truthful, I live just outside of town. I suppose paying taxes here makes me a resident, but on the other hand, I consider myself, by reason of being a suburbanite, not a city dweller. <laughs> you sure hate to commit yourself, don't you, Simon? <laughs> You in business here? Well, you might say I am. And again, I'd hardly call it being in business. I see. I, uh, I suppose I might be called a professional man. Although some people might find technical objections to the term, I work for the government, in a way. Oh. <laughs> but more strictly speaking, I am a local employee. Uh, doing what, may we ask? Oh, certainly. I am a meteorologist, otherwise known as the weatherman. Oh. Well, nice to have seen you again. Good day. Probably. <laughs> so he's the 
weather man. No wonder he won't give you a positive statement. <laughs> I suppose he can't help. Oh, look, McGee, we're almost home. Why don't you uh, tell me what my surprise is? Now, you know I've been very patient And spoil about the whole build-up? Nothing doing, Snooky. Besides, it isn't too exciting. Just a little something I planned on doing for a long time. Oh, hey, there's Wally Wimple. Hi, Wimple, man. Hello there, Mr. Wimple. Hello, folks. <laughs> Been out for school? Been to a movie to kill time, Wimp. I've cooked up a little surprise for my wife, and we didn't want to stick around home. Well, now, isn't that a coincidence? I've cooked up a little surprise for Sweetie Face, too. Yeah? That's my big old wife. <laughs> yes, we know. What you got planned, Wimp? Something romantic? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd hardly say that, Mr. McGee. <laughs> You see, this is Sweetie Face's birthday, so I wrote a little poem for him. Oh. I'm going downtown now and have it printed. Well, isn't that sweet? I'd forgotten you were a poet, Mr. Wimple. How does the poem go? Yes, recite it, Wimp. All righty. It goes <clears throat> to Sweetie Face on her birthday. You're 38 today, my dear, and in the very prime of life. As beautiful to me right now as when you first became my wife. How darling. That isn't all, Mrs. McGee. It goes on. <laughs> Like this. I thought of buying you champagne, but gave that up because I'd hate to spend an evening running round with a great big loaded 38. <laughs> ah, great little couple, him and Sweetie Face. Well, come on, kiddo. Let's just go this way. Well, why, McGee? Why must we go around through the alley? Well, the delivery men may be in the driveway, and I don't want you to see the surprise till it's all set. Yes, see? but I don't know oh, why. Oh, look. There's a delivery truck in the driveway right now. My gosh, I timed this just about perfect. Come on, baby. Uh, but, dearie, that's a coal truck. That wouldn't be... What... <laughs> McGee, what on earth are you... <laughs> that's the surprise, kiddo. <laughs> Enough coal to last all winter. <laughs> And I remembered to order it before we even needed it. Pretty thoughtful, eh? Remember how I forgot to order coal last year and we almost froze to death? <laughs> yeah, but McGee, now, I can't... How much more, Joe? That's the last of it, Mr. McGee. Three truckloads. How to last you's all winter. Great. Great. Much obliged, Joe. Well, how's about it, Molly? Pretty swell idea, huh? Uh, yes, uh, but I... Well, if I'd only known what you... Oh, dear. Hey, now, you're not disappointed, are you? Gee whiz, I said it wasn't much, but we needed it. No, and... no, dearie, I'm not disappointed oh, about that. It's only that, well, I had a little surprise for you, too, and now I can't show it to you. You did? You can't? Why not? What was it? Well, I know how you hate to shovel coal and fire the furnace. Uh -huh. So while you were fishing last week, I, well, I, I had a man come and change the furnace over to an oil burner. <laughs> You did? I'll show it to you next spring. It's buried under the coal now. Uh -huh. Bibber and Molly return in just a moment. Tell me, have you noticed that the Johnson's glow coat you've been buying lately gives your kitchen linoleum an unusually bright shine? Well, now, you're not just imagining things. Fact is, the glow coat on your dealer's shelf today gives you nearly twice as much shine as before. Look on the bright side, shine up the right side, bring out the beauty of the home. Ladies and gentlemen, it's nice to be back on NBC for Johnson's Wax for another season, and 
We hope you all enjoyed Fred Waring's wonderful music this summer. We certainly did. You know, Fred's on a different night now, McGee, with a new show, Monday Nights for General Electric. General Electric, eh? Well, I'll tune that in. I like to keep up with all the current programs. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't you hear me, Molly? I says I like to... Yeah, I heard you, dearie. (laughs) I'm afraid I'm not the only one. Oh, oh, you mean the... Oh, uh, good night. Good night, all. This is Harlow Wilcox, speaking for the makers of Johnson's Wax Products for Home and Industry, inviting you all to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. In 1947, that was uh, Fibber McGee and Molly. Whenever I hear their shows, I always picture what it must have been like to be sitting there in the audience. Having gone to several uh, taping of television shows, I, I know how electric the crowd can become, but what would have been special about this is it was done live, and I'm sure the theater, the auditorium, probably wasn't huge. I, I'm just guessing. I, I know Frank Brzee has talked about it, but I think it, it maybe sat a couple hundred people, but had to have a live orchestra there on the stage or, or, or band, and then just to have... Uh, the electricity of uh, the countdown to the show, and then then the music playing, and then all of the cast members coming out on stage. I don't know. It just I can just imagine how exciting it must have been to uh, to have been there in the audience. And I bet tickets weren't easy to get either. All right, a uh, couple questions or not questions, couple notes on that episode. Right at the beginning, uh, well, let me just play the clip. And uh, I want to comment on this. Yes, but I don't know that it has any special significance <laughs> unless uh, Mr. Bashinsky has sent an orchid to Mr. Winchell. Now, when I heard that, all kinds of bells and whistles went off. I assumed the Winchell was Walter Winchell, but who was this Bashinsky character? I didn't know. So I did just a little bit of research. I didn't find out a lot, but, but here's what, uh, what I did find out. According to Wikipedia, um, Andrei Vyshinsky was the legal mastermind of Joseph Stalin's Great Purge. You know, remember Joseph Stalin had millions of Russians killed that were, he viewed as political enemies. Although he acted as a judge, this is talking about Vyshinsky, he encouraged investigators to procure confessions from the accused and in some cases prepared indictments before the investigation was concluded. Uh, he was very high in the, in the uh, administration of uh, Stalin and did all sorts of things for Stalin as a legal representative. Uh, one one uh, British diplomat said all Soviet officials at that time had no choice but to carry out Stalin's uh, policies without asking too many questions. But Vashinsky, above all, gave me the impression of a cringing toady, only too anxious to obey his master's voice even before he had expressed his wishes. So this this was uh, not a nice guy. And, and if you go in and look at uh, his background... There's just one thing after another, uh, how he was involved in, in all sorts of mischief and, and really violence and, and 
war crimes and all sorts of things under under Stalin. Well, that was Andrei Vyshinsky. Of course, Walter Winchell was a well-known uh, uh, personality. Uh, he was a columnist. Uh, he was both a, uh, I guess, sort of a difference between a newsman and, and a, a gossip columnist. He would talk about show business a lot, but he also talked about politics and uh, the whole nation listened to him. He he was he's a very complex character, and I, I don't even want to take time to. We're not talking about Walter Winchell tonight, but even his political views. I mean, it was the whole spectrum. But he was very much involved with McCarthy and supported Eugene McCarthy during the McCarthy hearings. So I can only imagine that uh, something he said or something Vyshinsky said. Anyway, there was some sort of feud between them. If you know what it is, or you can give me a good reference, uh, I send me a note, would you, to uh, bob at boomerboulevard.com, and I would appreciate it very much. So anyway, that was that was the thing about uh, Vyshinsky and Walter Winchell. The other thing I found interesting was coal, having this coal delivered to their house. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have a basement full of coal that you had to shovel into your furnace? Now, I remember when I moved to New York in 1968 that uh, most homes in in the area of Brooklyn, and I was in Brooklyn Heights, right across the river from uh, lower Manhattan, that uh, there was either oil burning or coal burning furnaces and homes and buildings. More probably oil burning, but... One of the things I remember in wintertime, even though the air always was very crisp and clean during the winter, that no matter how often you dusted, uh, you would find little pieces of soot within an hour or two after dusting that this would settle settle down on the city. But what a change. In California, we never had that. We, we just had a furnace that burned natural gas or... Uh, at least we had a gas bill every month. That was when I was a kid. Talk about technology. The other day I was listening to a, uh, a program and they were talking about uh, batteries, uh, car batteries. And that uh, this battery, this was on an old-time radio show, an ad, that you only had to add water three times a year. Do you remember that, having to add water to your battery? I remember that you had to undo those caps on, on the cells and then you had... You had to use distilled water, and most gas stations would have a special dispenser sitting out there by the gas pumps where you could add water to your battery. <laughs> uh, those are memories, aren't they? Well, we'll have more Fibber McGee and Molly and Jack Benny and Armis Brooks and some of our other favorites in weeks ahead. Before we leave the comedy corner, I wanted to do just a couple clips from Bob and Ray, who were two of the funniest guys that ever lived. And I had the, the great privilege of seeing them uh, perform live on The Tonight Show one time when I was living in New York. I've talked about that in the past, but I still think about it. And I'll never forget the way they cracked Johnny Carson up. He was literally rolling on the floor laughing. Well, this is a clip from one of their uh, radio programs um, back in the 50s. And it's just so typical of their humor. And I challenge you to listen to this all the way through and not Laugh out loud. Hello, it's time to pay another of our 
regular visits to the Bob and Ray Hobby Hut, a special feature conducted by Neil Plummer, editor of Wasting Time magazine. Neil is nationally known as Mr. Hobby himself, and I see he's getting set up over at our other microphone with his special guest for today. So we'll just let you pick it up from there and carry on, Neil. Well, thank you very much, Bob. I think the gentleman here beside me has a collection that will be the envy of every hobbyist. His name is Carl Dickert. Of course, that immediately rings a bell with all your listeners who collect odd-shaped fruit and vegetables. But for the benefit of the non-hobbyist, I wonder if you'd tell us something about your collection, Carl. Yes, I'd be happy to, Neil. My collection consists of odd-shaped fruit and vegetables, and I've traveled all over the country to assemble the prize pieces I brought with me today. I'm always reading in the paper about somebody who's grown a Hubbard squash in the shape of an elephant or something like that. So I usually hop the next plane to go dicker with the owner about buying it for my collection. And, uh, and I assume you keep the specimens in these paper sacks that you brought with you. Yes. There aren't any ready-made albums available for displaying strange items and produce. And buying plane tickets to travel around the country, picking up the stuff, takes a lot of money. Sure. So I cut corners by keeping the collection in 238 separate paper sacks. I brought about 20 of the best ones with me today. Well, it's too bad that uh, there aren't any albums available for what you collect, uh, Carl. There aren't. But I see that you have labels neatly pasted on each sack telling what's inside. And uh, where you got it. Yes, I try to put all that information down while I still remember pertinent details. Like this one here, you can see it identifies the contents of the paper sack as a cluster of five carrots, all grown from a single seed and attached to each other at the top. I obtained those in August of 1974 from an elderly gentleman in Minnesota. And here at the bottom, it lists the price I paid, $3.25. Well, that's certainly cheap enough for an unusual specimen like five carrots all attached to each other. Yes, the old man needed money, so he let them go cheap. But, of course, my transportation to Minneapolis from my home in Florida ran almost $400. So I have more invested than you might think. Yes, I'm sure you do. And I notice another sack here that's labeled cantaloupe in the shape of a dill pickle. Well, now that's hard to imagine. I wonder if you could remove uh, some of your prized specimens like that from their sacks so we could, you know, describe them for our listeners. You mean you want me to open the sacks? Yes, if you don't mind. I don't uh, see you have a strip of tape across the top of each one holding it shut, so it shouldn't be uh, too hard to put them back after we've seen them. No, it won't be, be hard, so if you're sure that's what you want, okay. Oh, shoot. Oh, boy, that smells terrible. Yes, I know. Boy. That's why I couldn't figure out why you wanted me to open the sacks. Some of this fresh produce is four or five years old. Oh, See, the date on this cantaloupe in the shape of a dill pickle oh, is September 14th, 1972. Oh, away from me. I don't want to see the date. That is really overpowering. Boy. Yes, that's why I keep the specimens in sacks with the tape across the top that way. Oh, boy. Doesn't seem to be any way to preserve odd-shaped fruit and vegetables, so they keep their odd shape. Well, you know, all you've got there is uh, garbage, actually. <laughs> I suppose you could say that, Neil. But of course, I can visualize what each item looked like when it was still fresh. <laughs> That's why I always take a plane to go and pick up the stuff, so I can see it at least once before it decays. 
I'll take this one here. It's a tomato that grew up in the shape of a chicken. Oh, boy, that's awful. <laughs> hey, that smells worse than the first one. Yes. Oh, Three-year-old tomato that's not refrigerated will tend to do that. Oh, hey, would you close those sacks and sell off again, please? Oh, I thought you said you wanted to see the stuff. I changed my mind now. Would you get all that stuff out of here? Oh, boy, yeah. what a stench. Yes, I guess it's really not the kind of a collection I should put on display. Oh, boy. So I'll just take it and leave. Goodbye. Well, that seems to close out another of our informative sessions here in the Hobby Hut. So until next time, this is Neil Clemmer, urging all of you to have a good day and find a good hobby. Oh, my goodness. That piece just cracks me up. Here's two more uh, bits they did. One of them is their one of their most famous bits about the Komodo dragon. And then they have another one uh, with an interview from Washington, D.C., with uh, Gabe Pressman, one of their regular correspondents. This was recorded on uh, the Broadway stage. They actually had a Broadway production entitled Bob and Ray, the Two and Only, that ran for quite some time. I, I can recall when it, was, uh, when it was playing in New York. So let's go to Broadway and Bob and Ray, the Two and Only. So have you noticed lately uh, the in vogue words, uh, words like, uh, well, I guess they always were in the dictionary, but suddenly you hear them more and more. Words like pejorative, charisma certainly, uh, dichotomy, suskinisms we call them. <laughs> we, uh, we use that in the pejorative sense, of course. <laughs> and expertise, you hear that all the time. Now that implies that you're listening to the words of an expert. And that's one thing we have plenty of here today, our experts. We're delighted to have with us the world-renowned Komodo Dragon Authority <laughs> from Upper Montclair, New Jersey, Dr. Daryl Dexter. Dr. Dexter, would you tell everybody all about the Komodo Dragon, please? The Komodo Dragon is the world's largest living lizard. It's found on the steep-sloped island of Komodo in the lesser Sunda chain of the Indonesian archipelago and nearby Rinja, Padar, and Flores. It's a ferocious carnivory, and one swipe of its tail can render an enemy senseless. Uh, where do they come from? The Komodo dragon, the world's largest living lizard, is found on the steep-sloped island of Komodo, hence its name, and that is in the lesser Sunda chain of the Indonesian archipelago, and the nearby islands of Rinja, Padar, and Flores. We have two in this country, two Komodo dragons, which were given to us some years ago by the late former premier of Indonesia, Sukarno. I believe I read somewhere where a foreign potentate gave America some Komodo dragon. Is that true? Yes. The former premier of Indonesia, Sukarno, gifted this country with two Komodo dragons, world's largest living lizards, some years ago. And they're in the National Zoo in Washington. 
Well, now, if we wanted to take the children to see a Komodo dragon, uh, where would we take the children to see a Komodo dragon? If you were in the vicinity of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., you would take the kiddos to the National Zoo, and there you would see two Komodo dragons, the world's largest living lizards. There's a stuffed Komodo dragon in the lobby of the Royal Hotel in Kathmandu, Nepal. I believe they're of the lizard family, I think. Yes, they're the world's largest living lizard. And they're ferocious carnivory. One swipe of their tail can render an enemy well, doctor, senseless. I believe we've just about exhausted the subject. I want to thank you very much for coming by. I know it works a great hardship on you to come in here from Upper Montclair, New Jersey. Yes. And I want to thank you. Do you have a, a ride home? No, I don't. Well, uh, maybe somebody here in the audience will be kind enough to give you a lift after the show. That thank would be you. very nice. Thank you. Thank you. Another uh, member of our staff, family, who's been with us almost as long as uh, Wally Blue is Gabe Preston. <laughs> Gabe is our Washington correspondent. He reports in on a fairly regular basis with stories of a political nature uh, or anything with a Washington touch to it. We tape it and uh, use it later in the uh, evening sometimes. I think he's just about due to call in now. And Bob... This is Gabe Preston in Washington. Hi, Gabe. This is Bob. Where are you, in Washington? <laughs> yeah, Washington. Where else? <laughs> Look, I have a fairly important story here. I wish you'd get it down on tape as soon as possible and then get it on the air. Okay, okay got a big story, yeah. huh? Okay, well, the tape looks as if it's all set to go, so anytime you're ready. I'll go right now. Hello, everybody. This is Gabe Preston. An important story. Gabe, hold it just a minute, will you, please? I've got an idea. If this is such an important story, why don't I put the introduction right on the tape? Then we'll have the whole thing as a unit. We can play it all at once. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you give me a go-ahead? You know, just say, go ahead. <laughs> well, I can't do that if I've just introduced you. Sound all right, well, what's the cue again now? Kind of awkward. Cue will be uh, Washington. Okay. Okay? Let's roll the tape back, and we'll see if uh, we get a clean start. Now for up-to-the-minute news stories from our nation's capital. This we is Gabe Preston in Washington. Our nation's capital. Gabe. An important story. Yeah. I wasn't uh, finished introducing you yet. Well, you said the uh, nation's capital. Right, that's right. You know, Washington is the nation's capital. Well, I know they're one and the same thing, but uh, we've got to have a, a clean cue. The word, right, okay. The, the word Washington, okay? Right. Let's roll it back and get a clean start. <laughs> Okay? Fine. Now for up-to-the-minute news stories from our nation's Boom. capital. Boom. <laughs> we take you to Washington and Gabe Preston. Boom. <laughs> Gabe? Yeah. Well, where's the cue? Well, I said it, didn't I? I didn't hear any cue. said Washington in there someplace. I don't want to be here all night, you know? I'm getting oh. very confused we here. We can't be. This is a fairly important story. Can we get it on, please? Certainly. All what right. would you like me to give you? As well, a how cue? about here's Gabe Preston? Just that. I tell you what. 
Why don't you just go ahead and tape the story, and I'll put the introduction in live when we want to play it. Okay, I thought that's what we were going to do in the first place. Much, much better that way. Let me roll it back once more, and we'll, we'll start it. We'll get it this time. This is Gabe Preston See, I didn't Washington, think you were going to start it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I stepped on your line there. Yeah, I heard it. <laughs> I'll just let it run. Go ahead. This is Gabe Preston in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. An important story broke here today. Hold it, Gabe. I'm out of time. Oh, forget it. I'll have to get more tape. Well, there you have it. There's a salute to Bob and Ray on our comedy corner. They were two national treasures, and now they're, they're both gone. But they live on in the work that they did, and they still make us laugh. song about snakes, so I thought it only appropriate that we have a song about a rat. That was Michael Jackson with one of his first big hit singles, the song from the movie titled Ben. (laughs) 
now. Oh! indicates it is time for gun smoke everybody time to travel back in time to Dodge City Kansas 1874 and join up with Matt Doc Kitty and Chester and the whole gang on gun smoke this time we are going to go back to June the 7th 1959 for an episode that features Doc and Kitty and the name of the episode is Doc's Indians Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Letty. You mind what I say now? <laughs> you stay down on that bed. I'll look in on you in a day or so. Oh, sorry to have kept you waiting out here so long, Kitty. 
But Letty had a lot on her mind. That's all right, Doc. Kind of nice sitting here with the evening breeze blowing. Yes, and the air moves around more out here in the dozen town, and that's a fact. Yeah. Come on. Is Letty going to be all right? No, Kitty, she isn't. Oh, I'm sorry. It's her own fault. That sounds kind of heartless, Doc. No, I mean it. She calls me out here to tend to her when she feels bad enough, and then she never pays any attention to what I say. What do you mean? Well, sure as I'm driving this buggy, she's up on her feet right now. Oh, yes, doing some hard chore around the place. Wearing herself right down into another spell. Oh, I'm telling you, I just do not know how women do it. Well, they'll tell you the work won't get done by itself. Oh, yes, they tell me that, all right, but there's not a bit of sense to it. Waiting a day or two to scrub a floor wouldn't matter, not at all. It would to a woman. Oh, now you see. Oh, you're all alike. Oh, come on, Doc. Let's not argue our way back to Dodge. I don't get a chance to ride out on your calls with you very often. I don't want to spoil it by having to defend womankind. <laughs> or mankind either, for that matter. <laughs> all right, Giddy. Uh, I'm kind of sorry we can't stay out a little longer. Yeah. I am, too. It's not exactly refreshing in the long branch these hot nights. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Well, if it weren't for that fool Hud Perkins, we wouldn't have to hurry back. Something the matter with Hud? No, I doubt it. I doubt if there's anything wrong with him that a little less whiskey wouldn't cure. <laughs> but I promised him I'd look him over when I got back to town. He sure does a lot of talking about how good your doctoring is. You better take good care of him, Doc. He'll drum you up a lot of business. Yeah, he just needs somebody to tell him every so often that he hasn't got a fatal disease. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that makes him real good and friendly. Until uh, the next time. Well, he's your friend, that's for certain. Doc, uh, look, there's somebody standing in the road up ahead. Uh, what? Doc, it's an Indian. I see him, Kitty. Just a quiet. He's not going to move out of the road. He wants us to stop. He's got a gun. No. Don't be frightened, Kitty. Just sit still. Yeah. Why do you stop me? What do you want? You, doctor? Yes, I'm the doctor. You come. You want me to come with you? Other way. You come. What does he mean? It means to turn the buggy around and go back the way we came. Other way. There's another one, Doc, on a horse, back at that tree. Yes, I see him. I expect we better do what they want. Sorry, it's so rough, Kitty. It's mighty uneven ground. Uh, I'll make it fine, Doc. I wish, wish I knew where we were going. How far? Where do you take us? Not exactly Gabby, that's one thing. I don't feel too talkative myself. No, neither do I. Oh, oh. What? Look at that, Kitty. In those cottonwoods by the river. Doc, I feel a little sick. My golly, there's, 
There's a lot of them. They've set up quite a camp down there. We'll be stopping soon. You just sit straight and quiet. Yeah, all right, Doc. And don't be afraid. Oh. You stop. Oh. oh, men. They're walking all around us. Don't show any fear. Uh, is there a chief among you? I will speak to your chief. I am Little Wolf. I am chief. You will tell me why I've been brought here? You are a doctor. Yes? Yes, I'm a doctor. Walk down. Out of buggy. Little Wolf has not told me why his braves have brought me here. My son... He's second. Oh, you... You want me to look at him? You will make him strong. Walk down. If I look at your son, little wolf, the woman here in the buggy, she'll be safe. She will be safe. The chief will give his word. Little wolf gives his word. I will come here. You just sit quiet, Kitty. You'll be all right. The chief means what he says. I hope so, Doc. I, I won't be long. All right, little wolf. Show me the boy. Come. This way. There is no medicine man with little wolf? Medicine man made magic. The boy still sickens. And you think I can cure Little Wolf was prisoner with white men. He saw white man's magic bring strength to a fallen soldier. You make my son strong. He lies in there. Go in. Yes. I see. All right, Little Wolf. I'll have a look at him. Let me get down so I can see. Yes, he has a fever. Erratic pulse. How long since your son has spoken? Yesterday, sunrise. I see. Uh, he will be well. Your son's a sick boy. A very sick boy. You make him strong. I will try. You will stay here in lodge with my son. If I stay, little wolf, there must be a bargain. You bargain for the life of my son? I would bargain for the woman. She is to go free. If woman goes free, she will bring soldiers. No, no, I'll speak to her. I will tell her of your son. She will not bring the soldiers. Better she stay here. I have told you, little wolf. She will not bring the soldiers. Doctor, give me his word. The doctor gives his word. The woman can go.
You know, Mr. Dillon, the prairie ain't half ugly this time of the morning, is it? I don't know how you can see it at all, Chester. The sun isn't even up yet. Yeah, I know. Maybe that's why it don't bother me none. Yeah. Only trouble is, I always get hungry long about sunup. Hungry? You ate just an hour ago. Well, yes, sir, I know that. I don't know how you ever made out in the Army, Chester. Oh, it wasn't too bad. Not working around the supply wagons like a nun. <laughs> what do you reckon Mort Huggins wants with us? I mean, you figure it's important enough that we have to ride a full day out to his place and back. Ah, uh, you didn't have to come, you know. Well, I know. There ain't nothing to do in Dodge except to whittle and spit. Well, you could have found Doc and told each other lies for a while. That ornery old cuss won't stir out of bed till midday. Oh? Yes, sir, he took Miss Kitty with him in the buggy yesterday and while he paid some calls. They wasn't even back when I went to bed. Wasn't no lamp burning in his place and Miss Kitty wasn't at the Long Branch. Yeah, I know. Well, an evening off won't hurt either one of them. They work pretty hard, you know. Yes, sir, I suppose they do. But I can't help thinking that just about the time this old prairie's hot as a cook oven, Doc will be ambling along Front Street on his way to have a noontime beer with Miss Kitty. And Miss Kitty will be there cool and comfortable, sitting on a stool. Sam will be pouring cold beer into great big pitchers. And everybody oh, for heaven's sake, me. Chester, if you're going to grumble all the way out to Mort Huggins' place, you better turn around and start home right now. Oh, no, sir, I like it. I like it just fine. <laughs> all right, then, let's ride. We amble along like this, we won't be home before dark. <laughs> Kitty. Help me down, will you, Moss? Sure. Oh. Here. There. Thanks. You want to sit down? No, I'll be all right. From the looks of that horse, this rig's been running most of the night. Yeah, it has. Oh? I waited up quite a spell for the doctor to come in. You must have run into a real bad case out there somewhere. Real bad case. He's still out there. Well, I'll fix it for somebody to go out and fetch him on. Hit you up a fresh horse. I didn't send the Peters for No, Moss, don't do that. Why, you ain't just going to leave him out there to walk home, are you, Miss Kitty? Where is Doc, anyway? Don't ask me that, Moss, because I can't tell you. You mean you don't know where you've been? I mean, I can't tell you. Wow. Have you seen Matt this morning? Why, yes, ma'am. He and Chester come got their horses before sunup. Rode out to the Huggins place. Be back late this afternoon, I said. Oh. Well, if you see him before I do, will you ask Matt to come down to the Long Branch? I want to talk to him right away. Sure I will, Miss Kitty. Thanks, Moss. Miss Kitty. Hmm? You sure you feel all right? Yeah, thanks. I'm all right. You just be sure to tell Matt. You sure you don't want me to fetch you some dinner, Kitty? It's way past noontime. No, thanks, Sam. I don't feel like eating just yet. This coffee's fine. Yeah, body should keep her strength up. But... Oh, no, not him again. Who's that, Sam? Hud Perkins. He's been asking after you all morning. Huh? You want me to send him away, Kitty? Oh, no, Sam. I'll talk to him. Kitty? 
Yeah, Hud. Well, I've been in here looking for you on and off all morning. What's on your mind? I want to know where Doc is. That's what's on my mind. He was supposed to doctor me last night. Well, he had to stay with somebody sicker than you are, Hud. Letty Green? Why, there ain't nothing wrong with her to amount to anything. Lim told me she's up and around already. Not Letty Green. He give me his word he'd be here. He ain't got no right to go back on his word Oh, like Hud, that. for heaven's sake. Besides, there's something mighty strange going on. Moss Grimmick says you brung Doc's buggy in yourself. Now, why would Doc want to go and let you take his buggy? I didn't steal it, Hud. It don't make no sense. How's Doc going to get back to Dodge? Don't you worry about it. He'll get back. You bet he will, because I'm going after him. Must have headed west from Lem Green's Now, Hud, you just leave things alone. Don't worry about Doc. Well, it appears to me that somebody better worry about him, leaving him stranded off somewhere that way. I'm going to fetch him. Now, wait a minute, Hud. I'll take long extra horse, and I'll bring him back. Now, listen to me, Hud Perkins. Don't go meddling in things you don't know anything about. I know enough not to leave Doc out there. If you go after him, you can endanger Doc's life and your own, too. What do you mean by that? Just what I say. Doc in some kind of trouble? He won't be if you leave him alone. Sounds like somebody's holding him, forcing him to stay. Is that the way it is? I didn't say that. Well, I ain't gonna let nothing like that happen to Doc. He's got plenty of friends in this town. We'll go break uh, him. Now, Hud. Hey, listen here, everybody. It seems to me old Doc's in some kind of trouble. We ain't gonna stand for that now, are we? Right, stop it. We'll just go get on our horses and go get him. Come on now, we'll meet in front of the depot in an hour. No. Let's go. Wait, Hud. Listen, come back here. You'll get him killed. You fools, you'll get him killed. Come back here. You sure couldn't stop him, Kitty. No, Sam, I couldn't. And if Matt doesn't get back, I guess there's nobody you can. Claire, Mr. Dillon, a day like today could drive a man to take a midweek bath. Yeah, Chester, it did get pretty dirty out there, didn't it? Pretty dirty? Ooh-wee. Say, you can tell folks you spent the best part of the day looking for three old sows. <laughs> well, if they ask me, I'll tell them, yeah. That's a fine thing for a U.S. marshal to be doing. You really think Mort Huggins thought them old sows was stole? I sure he thought so, Chester. Mort Huggins is a good man. He wouldn't get us out there on a... On a wild sow chase? <laughs> Did you hear that, Mr. Dillon? A wild sow chase. I heard chase. it, Chester. <laughs> yeah, well, that was kind of a joke. You see, yeah. I could have said... Well, I can think of a better one. What? A picture of you rooting those mired-down sows out of that slough. <laughs> I guess that was a sight, all right. Yeah. Uh, you take my horse on around to the livery stable, will you, Chester? I want to get right back to the office. Yes, sir, I will. Matt? Matt? What? Oh, Matt. hello, Kitty. I'm so glad you're back. Oh, what's the trouble? It's Doc. They'll kill him, sure. That Hud Perkins is Hud taking Perkins. him. Why would Hud Perkins want to kill him? Oh, well, it's Doc. not Hud, Matt. It's, it's the Indians. Doc made me promise not to send help. Now, no, wait a minute. Hold on. Just hold up a minute and start over again now, will you? Now, where is Doc? He's in an Indian camp on the river. Well, what's he doing there? Well, they stopped us and they made Doc stay with him. The chief's son's very sick. But they'll kill him, sure, if that crazy Hud Perkins rides up there with his drunken bunch. You mean Hud Perkins has set out to rescue Doc? Yeah, Matt, but he doesn't know about the Indians. Well, how's that? 
Doc bargained with the chief. If he let me go, I wouldn't tell about it and send help, so I, I didn't tell HUD. Oh, I see. But with all this going on, I, I thought I'd better tell you. Was I right, Matt? Yeah, Kitty. Yeah, you were right. <laughs> Mr. Dillon, you don't think Hud Perkins be fool enough to ride all night, do you? Well, I don't know, Chester. He's not the kind to stop and figure things out. He sure ain't. The simpleton, he don't even know where he's headed for. And I hope we find him in time to tell him. Well, looks like we're having a little luck. Hmm? Somebody's fired down that wash there. Reckon it's Hud's? Well, I hope it's Hud's. Come on. I'm looking for Hud Perkins. Oh, Marshal. Chester, mighty glad you come to join us. Well, now, that ain't exactly... I want to talk to you, Hud. Sure, Marshal. There's coffee on the fire. I want you to take your men and turn around and go home. What'd you say? I want you to go on back to Dodge. Now, listen, Marshal. I set out to get Doc out of effects, and I mean to do it. You know where he is? No, but we'll find him. Come morning, we're going to spread out. We'll find him. You know what kind of a fix he's in? Uh, that don't matter none. I'm going to get him out of it, that's all. A good friend like Doc, it don't matter to me who's holding him. Well, it ought to matter. Don't make no difference to me. Not even if it's Indians? Indians? A moving band of Indians down the river away. They're holding Doc to tend to the chief's son. Oh, that's the way it is. Yeah, that's the way it is. And the sooner you turn around and head back to Dodge, the better. Uh, Marshal, I ain't afraid of no Indians. We ain't afraid of no Indians, are we, boys? If the Indians have old Doc, we'll just break him loose, won't we, boys? All right, be quiet, all of you. Now, listen to me. Is there anybody here who thinks he's a better friend of Doc Adams than I am? Well, is there? All right, then. You know that I'm as interested in getting him out as anybody is. Well, let's go get him, in. And I'll tell you one thing for sure. If you all ride out on that Indian camp, you won't be doing Doc a favor. The least that'll happen is that you'll get him killed. There'll probably be an Indian uprising to boot. Now, the best thing you can do for Doc is to turn around and go home and let me handle this. You figure to take care of it alone, Marshal? If it can be done at all, that's the only way to do it. Well, now, listen to him, boys. The Marshal thinks he can do the job better than all us together. Look, I know about these things. It's my job to know about them. Now, you go on, Hud. You go on back to Dodge and you take these men with you. You always got to be the whole show, don't you, Marshal? Well, I may work in Dodge City, but it don't work out here. You tell me to go back to Dodge, you got a fight on your hands. All right, Hud, you suit yourself. You ain't giving me no more... Want me to get his gun, Mr. Dillon? No, Chester, I think he's through. Now, any of the rest of you set on riding out of that camp? Because if you are, you're going to have to fight me before you fight any Indians. All right, then, pick up Hutt and get him back to Dodge. Come on, Chester, let's see what we can do for Doc.
sure must have saw us coming by now, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. But at least they haven't started shooting. Well, let's leave the horses here, Chester, and walk into camp. We won't look so much like the cavalry that way. White men, stop. They've saw us now, all right. All around us. We just stand steady. We come in peace. White men wear guns. Our guns stay covered. Indian guns not covered. You reckon they're going to shoot? I don't know, Chester. Just don't make any fast moves. It's all right. It's all right. They're friends of mine. The two white men are friends of mine. Yeah, It's all right now. It's all right, I tell you. You can put your guns down. My gracious lie, Mr. Dillon. Them Indians are doing just what he says uh, to do. Hello, Matt and Chester. Well, you can be thankful that I was here. Well, I am, Doc. But you don't seem very glad to see us. And, uh, I told Kitty not to send anybody after me. That's a long story, Doc. I'm not interested in any long stories, Matt. Now that you've come, uh, how do you figure to get me back to Dodge? Riding behind uh, one of you two? Well, to tell you the truth, Doc, we figured to get you out the best way we could. Well, it's a good thing I didn't rely on you to work things out. Oh, you there, bring me my horse. Doc, you mean they give you your very own horse to keep? Why, certainly, Chester. That was part of the bargain. If I cured the boy, I got a horse and my freedom. What about the other part of the bargain, Doc? What if you hadn't cured the boy? Well, that's pretty simple, man. I wouldn't have needed the horse. Gunsmoke has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Seventh, 1959. The name of that episode of Gunsmoke was Doc's Indians. That was the best uh, or clearest recording I have of that particular episode. It was pretty good quality. These later episodes of Gunsmoke, you don't get that as often. So uh, I wanted to uh, to play that one. Hope you enjoyed it. More Gunsmoke next time on Boomer Boulevard. Okay, it's about time we pick up all the shows and carry them back into the vault.
folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. Now, don't be sad. Don't be sad. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll do it all over again. Just be patient. This is Bob Rowe. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me. Thank you.